Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Today, we have Vassi on the show, and I'm really excited to interview her because she reached out to the show to tell us about a great leader that she worked for. And those are my favorite stories. The people who are so inspired when they catch the title, Best Boss Ever, somebody immediately comes to mind. So Vassi, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Christine. My name is Vassi Papadopoulos, Greek Canadian, of course, by the last name. I currently work as the uh, Vice President of Corporate Communications here at uh, an agency in Toronto called Believeco. And I wanted the opportunity to sit down and uh, speak with you and and be able to really share a great experience of of having, you know, lived through and being managed by uh, a great boss. It would have been in my last role, who is also male. When we have this conversation, you know, makes a big difference as uh, someone as a as a woman, you know, in leadership spaces and in places sometimes where you don't see a lot of us as women. Absolutely. Well, listen, I am so I, I just want to dive in. So tell us the best boss you've ever had. Tell us a little bit about who he was and why he came to mind when you heard about this show. He really came to mind because in my previous role. And I've sort of, I would say, have made a career in working in really, really tough industries. And my last industry was a a very tough one. It was what I would say very male dominated. And so, you know, sometimes when you want to be a good leader and develop yourself and you don't see a lot of other women around, it's, it's hard to be represented. And it's sometimes hard to have that voice even for someone like me, where people would say, you know, she's confident, you know, she's capable and, and, and so forth. And so in, in this case, you know, when I thought about, you know, what made him such a great boss was really the notion of allyship and being a man in a situation where, you know, he really tried to understand my perspective as a female leader in an environment where I was trying to be effective, I was trying to be empowering, I was really trying to work through a system and really make changes. And so for me, that allyship, you know, sometimes is very difficult to find. And it's difficult to find in groups that maybe not understand the journey that you're in or the things that you experience in a workplace. And maybe I can get into, you know, what I mean by by allyship. And one of the things that he was really able to help me do was to sort of, as a woman, put me in situations where my profile was elevated and I wasn't always thought of as, hey, this is Vasi. She's the social, fun coordinator of things. Or, you know, maybe she'll be the one that will organize the workshop or she'll do kind of, you know, she'll take on some of that administrative role. And sometimes I think as women, Christine, like we don't know that we do it. We're sort of conditioned and we default and are like, 
absolutely, I'll take that kind of work on. But then you realize in an organization, like, why is it tipped towards us as women? One of my clients calls that non-promotable tasks. Exactly. Right? They're the tasks that we raise our hand to help with. And we're like, yeah, we'll organize the workshop. We'll pick up the birthday cake. But they're non-promotable tasks. So it's a whole extra workload. But at the end of the day, you know, you can't go at the end of the year for your performance review and say, but I'm the one that organized the workshop and I'm the one that sent out the meeting notices. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, nobody's going to give you a leadership position for that. Exactly. Right. And it, and it took me quite a lot of time in my career. And I think maybe for other women as well to recognize that and say, there's still room to do it. Of course you can do some of it, but it was sort of, I was at a point where I didn't want to be seen as just the person or the go-to person and to be very blunt, to be on the social committee, Mm -hmm. you know, and then go organize this and organize that. And, you know, I had a conversation with this boss, with him. And I said to him very openly, "I, I don't want to be this person all the time. That's default put into these situations because of of my personality and who I am and what I project. Like I am more than that. I'm smart. I'm capable. I have a, a good skill set. That's why you hired me. And so after that conversation, you know, one of the things he was able to do for me was there was an opening in our company's pension board. So, you know, I was working at a very large multinational. We've got this pension board where you need directors internally from various areas of the organization. And he put my name up to say, Bassi, I think you're capable. You can come from a corporate affairs perspective in this role. And that really was sort of a turning point because it ended up becoming, A, he listened to me to be like, don't make me the the social committee person to be very blunt, but allow me to really, you know, expand my breadth of experience and my knowledge. And, And fine, like you can say, you know, why would Vasi sit on a on a pension board? On the flip side is, wh- why wouldn't I? I come from a different perspective. I have a different background. No, I don't have, you know, maybe the financial or the, the technical skill set of that. And so that was, you know, one of the first times in my career where it was, I provided that desire and feedback to want to be seen and to be able to do something different. And, you know, he found that opportunity for me. And I sat on that board until I left the company. You know, I I sat on it for four years and it was for me a very enjoyable thing to do. And I really grew as a leader because it was something completely different and outside of what I would say my normal scope of work and my day-to-day work. I mean, that's a great example because I'm hearing some sponsorship there. So he's advocating for you behind your back, right? With the folks that make decisions. I also hear he's elevating your influence, right? So he's putting you in a position where you actually have more impact and influence, which really is one of the challenges we have, right? In that environment. And third, I think what's really neat about this is I have lobbied time and time again, that if we really want to drive the diversity and inclusion agenda, we need to build amazing bosses. It doesn't matter if they're men, women, green, blue, black, we don't care. We just need amazing leaders. So what happened there is you having an amazing boss just helped retain you, helped grow you, and then probably opens the door then for other people that want to join the organization. They now look up and see someone that looks like them, right? And so it creates it creates a culture change. But we don't need 
you know, a lot of people perceive that women need to be the driver of DEI or people with diverse backgrounds. And I actually argue quite the opposite. We need amazing best boss ever male leaders who can sponsor and be allies for anybody. Absolutely. And I think that's what's always missing from a female perspective is that we take that burden on ourselves and think, hey, you and I, Christine, we're women. We have to be the champions all the time. We have to push the agenda. But the way a lot of structures are built and systems are built, that that's not the case. Like, I find that also exhausting. Like, I, I mean, you do have to develop self-advocacy, but you also need a network of people, especially a good boss, to, to then be your champion and your advocate. And in this in this specific example, that's exactly what he was. And it was like, I hear where you're coming from. You don't want to be known as X. And then he was able to find something that said, you know, something that'll stretch me, give me profile and something that was also enjoyable where I could, where I could learn more. And that was really like a good aha moment for me. And I think sometimes men leaders feel like, what is it that I can really do for maybe a woman or, or, or maybe like a person of color or somebody that is not reflected in the organization. And all I want to say is, this is a perfect example of something very basic and small that is allyship. Sometimes the gestures don't have to be grand. They don't have to be sweeping. They have to be little changes where you're able to influence in areas where you can. So then the reflection of that employee base changes over time. That's amazing. And what other stories do you have? I mean, tell me more about this leader and their ability to demonstrate allyship. I mean, that's such a big word. And just like you said, it's very hard for people to picture, what do I look like if I'm being an ally? Yeah. I think the, I think the other piece in parallel with this notion of like, you know, putting me into different spaces when I was working at the company at the time, I I've always had it in me to want to do my executive MBA. And that, that would have been a like, like probably four or five years ago now. And at the time I kept thinking like, Christine, how do I do this? Like I'm working, I have a good career. I had a young son, probably five or six at the time. How am I able to, you know, fulfill this dream of greater education and, and still be able to work? And, you know, again, this is where I went to my boss and said to him, I really, really want to do this. I don't know if I can, you know, it's like a, it's, I'm torn between, I've got a do the program that takes 18 to 20 months. I have to make sure work is taken care of from your perspective. I have a son and a husband. They need to be okay with this. And what he was able to do for me in that case, and I graduated. I, I did my executive MBA. I graduated Amazing. in 2018. He was, again, able to create the conditions where I was able to do the program. He had done an MBA himself, which was great. So he understood the program. He provided a, a letter of recommendation, uh, you know, as part of the sort of selection process. But what he also did is that he and I had set up sort of a space or a system where, you know, if I needed the four days of the month to do the program, he was accommodating about that. As long as I did my work, you know, and there was a balance between that, I was able to do the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday studying. And he went even so far to say, you know what, those are not days you necessarily, maybe I shouldn't share this, but you don't need to bank as vacation. They're all, all part of your learning and development. So a lot of companies would come to you and say, hey, 
you want to do, you know, this training for X amount of time, that's on your time. And so we had that sort of agreement that he would give me that time to do it. And so right from the beginning, it was a comfortable situation where like, again, that's allyship. He was able to provide an environment and a system that worked. And I made sure my end of the deal was I did my job. I didn't miss my deadlines. If I had to talk to him about that, I would. I still did a lot of the traveling associated with it, but I still carved out time to do my MBA work and then also be a wife, a mother and everything else. Like as a woman, you have to do in your life to keep everything sort of organized and going. So this is such an interesting one because I'm curious, like when he provides an environment that you can take on something that's really important to you from a growth perspective, what did he get in return from you? Well, I, I think like doing your NBA program, what it really develops are a, a lot of sort of key areas for him in the business. And I think I really felt like there was a whole new network that I was tapping into. I think there was, you know, and and him having done the program, recognizing there's a different approach in which you look at business, in which you sort of look at, it could be initiatives, project management, analysis. And I think for him, it was, you know, she's going to come out of this having built an even better skill set and framework for the work that she wants to do and needs to do for me and for the company long term. I think it was more like not so much what he was going to get out of it, more so like recognizing what the potential was long term, both for him and also the company. But I think there's something even even in addition to everything you just said, there's this thing about he has this star player and he gets engagement out of that. Like he gets, you know, if you look like employee engagement so fascinating because lots of people, if they're really focused and really engaged, they can actually compress their work week pretty well. The reason we're scared of compressing our work week is because we worry that disengaged employees are going to just start doing less work altogether. But what's interesting is, you know, at the point that he is truly supporting your growth, you've kind of already invested in the growth of the business and supporting him as a leader. So there's this mutual exchange where it's like, I'm going to make sure that you're successful. You're going to make sure I'm successful. And I think I'm just hearing that, like in the way that you tell the story, there's this commitment to one another because you're both out for the betterment of each other. Yeah. And I also, I really like what you said. And I I, I, I want to maybe expand upon that while doing my MBA and working and and doing all the other stuff associated with, you know, life, I would look back on that time and say, was it a lot of work? Yes. But I think it was one of the more fulfilling times of my professional career. And that's exactly to your point. I felt like I was truly engaged, very focused on what I had to do. And, you know, doing my professional development in parallel and working with the company really enhanced both of the experiences. And I think to your point, like you make a a brilliant point there is that we sometimes undercut that employee piece of it. You know, companies look at it and say, sure, do your MBA, you know, what do I get out of it? But I think that soft piece, which is happiness, focus, engagement, structure, those are things that I guess you could say from a business perspective, there's not like a hard ROI return on investment on them. But to your point, if I'm like content, engaged, and I'm in there, 
oh, there's a big return on investment there because I'm going to do whatever you want me to do to make sure everything is done well and it's done successfully. I'm listening to you and I'm smiling because I'm just thinking, you know, I'm sort of synthesizing what you said. And it's like a mediocre leader kind of views it as a one-dimensional thing. Okay, X number of hours out of the office, X number of hours you owe me back. A best boss looks in three dimension, right? And so they see that, sure, there might be a time, maybe they don't win on the exact hour per hour exchange of time, but they win on the engagement, they win on the problem solving, they, they win on the way that you show up and think about the business, they went on the type of role model that you're going to be to the rest of the organization. So they're thinking in three dimension and they're going, I don't care so much whether, you know, if she doesn't exactly meet 7.5 hours on Fridays when she, you know, I'm more interested in, can I get that three-dimensional return from supporting her on this growth path? And that's what it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if people are listening, the best types of bosses look for that three-dimensional experience and that output, because that is directly then correlated with, is the person you're managing or leading engaged? Do they feel like they're being challenged? Do you feel like you're really contributing to something? And also, are you taking whatever you're learning and adding those skill sets in a way that maybe is completely different from before? And again, those are the things that if you just look at, I guess in this case, you know, training, or you know professional development yeah it's it's not just a okay they did the studying checkbox and got the paper certification or degree those are all the pieces that over time you build a really effective group of leaders long term so now this is a question that comes up often you know i'm in the world of professional development and so there's always a question about what the return on investment is so i mean this is even a classic example right here you know your emba was expensive i'm sure and you know if you think of what is the return on investment of working for a best boss like what does a business get at the bottom line when they have a leader like this leader that you worked for oh for me is productivity and hard facts it's like productivity you know that the these people, if you really want to work for this boss, they're going to put in the time and the effort and the hours regardless. I think on like, you know, more like the soft facts, I guess, from a business perspective, it's like you have an engaged group of people, or at least in my case, where you build trust, you build loyalty, and you build like an environment where you go, I like to work here, you know, and I want to be engaged. And Christine, that's that's really hard to find, you know. Like, and and we've and you you've seen that with the pandemic and with people changing jobs and doing an assessment and reflecting on like, is this what I want to do and so forth? Because that's really the ROI for me at the end of the day are are those pieces as opposed to like the productivity. Because if you have those pieces, the productivity will always come. It works sort of in parallel with the trust, the loyalty, the engagement. I'm content. I feel like I'm part of something. Absolutely. That's great. Let's talk about consistency again. You were talking about during the pandemic, how much this idea of consistency started to shine through to you. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel or I've or what I sort of witness or experience is that, you know, really good bosses or leaders shine in times of crisis and a lot of chaos. It's it's really easy to lead 
a company or a group of people or a project when things are going very well, right? Of course, we can all be superstars that way. But when things happen, and then the context really of the pandemic for me, you know, that's where I started. That was my aha moment about consistency was it was really fascinating for me to explore and observe leaders and how consistent they were in a time where we had no information, no data, things could change tomorrow, you know, you're running this and you're running that. And I I walked away, you know, two and a half years later going, it was very interesting to see the people that really, I would say, you know, Sean, like they really stepped up and leaned into the consistency and really led. And then others that I was like, that, that was interesting to watch. And that, that was for me, that's why I, I raised this notion of consistency. You really see it in times of crisis. And I think it's really good leadership grounding to find yourself in those situations and say, how would I react? Like, do do I consistently then lead in times where, honestly, there were moments during the pandemic, remember at the beginning, where we had no idea what was going on. We were, we were in lockdown mode. We were all sitting in our houses going, is it the end of the world? Is it not the end of the world? And, and so, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you nailed it because that is that idea of consistency, right? It's it's the knowing what I'm going to get and knowing how somebody's going to lead each day, regardless of what's happening. So the pandemic's a perfect example of, you know, all of a sudden the sky is falling, read the news, like, you know, it's like the world's going to hell. <laughs> and now you have to be a leader to people who are experiencing that type of fear, you know, fearing for their health and their families and things like that. So going back to that idea how you showed up in that moment, most leaders will really be a very memorable moment of whether they were consistent or not, whether they were empathetic, whether they were self-aware. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I, I, I do, I really feel this word consistency is underrated or underplayed. Cause I think people think it's more like a habit behavioral thing. And I'm like, no, it's bigger than that. It's really how you show up as a leader. Now, what have you learned in your experience from not best bosses. We all know what it's like to work for a boss that we will not title best boss ever. <laughs> and I'm just curious, what what experiences have you learned from those type of leaders? I, I think in my career, there are two areas I would focus on. Um, one is micromanagement. I think that is really a symptom of leadership control. And wanting to feel like you always have to micromanage or control things really for most employees, or at least in my case, I've learned I shouldn't do that because it it's really counterproductive in terms of how you want your employees to show up and deliver their work. And so, you know, my key takeaway when I've had bosses like that was like, don't do that. You know, don't feel like you have to control all elements of everything that's going on give employees the ability to to breathe and and trust that they can do their jobs. I think the second one for me, and I've learned some of the best bosses do this and, and some of the not great bosses do this, is temperament and how you show up to people. And, you know, the higher up you get, it's you really want to be a person that manages the ebb and flow of life, manages the ebb and flow of management and, and work. And, you know, the ones that always had these 
temperaments that would just go up and down, up and down. Like that, that that's a really hard environment to work in because you're always wondering, who am I going to get today? And so the the takeaway from that, if I take it from like what the worst boss was, was really working on being a leader that is the opposite of that, that, you know, having a consistent demeanor and temperament, I think is really a skill and something that makes you over time a best boss versus a, you know, I don't want it to be black and white versus a, a, a the worst boss. But those those are really the two areas for me that I've either lived and experienced and then and learned from it and and taken from those experiences. I really like what you just said. I think this is a powerful point that I just want to drive home. Consistency being a skill. I just had an aha moment when you said that, because when I'm working with leaders, just like you said, inconsistency is pretty easy, right? You know, you have a good day, bad day, something's going on at home. So, you know, to be inconsistent to your people I mean, a lot of us probably don't even think twice about it, you know, but if you have incredible emotional intelligence and self-awareness, which always seems to be the reason I get invited to the table, right? It's like, we need leaders with better self-awareness. What you just said really reminds me of why that self-awareness and the emotional intelligence is so important because we're trying to build leaders that are consistent and trustworthy. Just like you said, you need to know what you're going to get when you walk in the room that day. And if you don't know, <laughs> there's an added layer of stress and lost productivity that happens if you're trying to constantly anticipate what kind of mood is this leader going to be in this day, or how are they going to respond to this? Are they going to respond poorly? Or are they going to respond well? It's a lot of added you know, pressure and stress. So I really like what you said there as far as consistency being a skill. I think you nailed it. We don't talk about that a lot. Well, and we don't talk about consistency enough in in life either. Like, you know, you get to be good at things because you're consistent. Like, do you wake up around the same time every day? Do you make your bed every day? You know, do you do things a certain way? And when you have that, I know those are small examples, but when you have that consistency, it does build that, like, I call it like that muscle of who you are to then you end up doing it and you don't even think about it maybe five years down the road. And so I, I work really hard to be consistent. It's a hard skill, you know, you, but you have to really work at it. It's not something that I think to your point, Christine, that we're always aware of, but it's like, if we're consistent, at least maybe in temperament or approach, or you're open with people to say, Hey, you know what? I'm probably not having a good day today. Just know that. And, and communicate it. But at least you're then consistent to know that, you know, uh, things maybe haven't bothered me the last three days, but I'm just not having a good day today. And uh, I really, I'm with you. I think we don't focus on that at all in leadership. And we get a lot of leaders in positions where they're they're really not consistent. That's such a fantastic point. I think for anybody that's listening, I feel like, you know, let's, you know, when you walk away, go spend some time asking yourself, how consistent are you? When's the last time you kind of lost it on somebody, you know, and how would you show up if you were going to show up more consistently? I think that's a great question. Very thoughtful for our group. I guess from here, anything else you want to add to this topic before we start to wrap it up? No, I think, you know, if you do want to be a best boss long-term, it's really understanding people individually and where they come from and what their motivations are. And I think some of the best bosses know, like, 
I, I'm a certain way from a leadership perspective. I do things a certain way, but not everybody else does it. And that's okay. But then taking the time to understand, you know, why do they work this way? Where does their motivation come from? Like what drives them every day? And and I think once you start to understand that, I think you over time start to become a really good boss. You know, it takes a lot of self-awareness, but I you have a sense of everybody and how they fit in and and all of that. Because I think sometimes, you know, Christine, in our heads, we think our leadership is the only leadership model or the only leadership way to do it. And I've also learned, you know, in, in my career, that's not the case at all. Just because Vasi does it a certain way does not mean anyone even remotely does it the way I do it. That's great. And then if you were going to give any words of wisdom to a leader who's really in the process of trying to become more like that best boss, like what would you give them? What tips or takeaways would you give them? Mine is really, really basic is listen to your people. So if you if you create an environment where you are open to feedback, discussion, people challenging you, people raising things with you, you will become a better people manager and a better boss over time. Thank you so much. This was amazing to get your perspective. And I love the story of your best boss. So thank you so much, Fassi. Thank you, Christine. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.